0: Hello oh, and welcome to this edition of the Making Theatre Podcast. My name is James Farncombe. And my name is Bruno Poet and we are freelance lighting designers. This time we're talking to Angie Bowal, the creative director of Trigger, a company based in the southwest of England producing large-scale outdoor theatre and events. I first encountered Trigger in Plymouth where I saw an incredible event produced by
1: Angie that we will talk about later. It was fascinating to see the impact of the show on both the audience and the people taking part. And a reminder that you don't need to be in an actual theatre to make great theatre.
0: Hello, Angie, and welcome to the Making a Theatre podcast. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So far in this podcast, we've mainly been talking to people who make theatre in, well, theatres
1: of some kind. But the word theatre, to me, covers a much broader variety of live performance much of which takes place far away from a traditional theatre building. Can you describe the work that you do?
2: I started my life in theatre. I love the theatre. It's my home and space. But more and more, my work takes place outdoors. So we just launched The Huchling last year, which was a huge puppet dragon that walked the streets of Plymouth. And then she went out to the lighthouse on the home, um, which is on the coastline, and she flew off the cliffs of Plymouth from Deb and Cornwall with the wingspan of 20 metres.
0: She actually flew?
2: Yeah. So it's puppetry mixed with kite flying, mixed with Eastern and Western mythology. So the whole idea of the dragon uh, is all about, for me, about those two worlds colliding um, and multiculturalism. So we had 30,000 people who came out. And I'm really interested in other people's thing. So kite flying was one, and I started making kites myself, and that's how I got... Interested in that. And then recently we just launched Pollinations, which is a horticultural super garden where we took over city centres with um, plants and flowers with horticulturalists. So I got to learn more and more about plants and flowers and where they're from. And what we found out in that project was that 80% of plants are non native. So when you look out your window and you look in your garden, most of what you're seeing is multicultural and most of it wouldn't have been here originally. And mm. so when we think about green and pleasant land, it would have been pretty. And all that implies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I, my theaters tends to straddle being, you know, I, I'm proud to be featured in a specialist kite magazine, even though I don't think I've ever made a kite that really flew very reliably. <laughs> and, um, out of my hobbyist, uh, horticultural fun during lockdown, I was, um, on Gardner's World Question Time. So I'm to get into to niche areas by just getting obsessed with something for, for a short amount of time. But usually those things are things that lots of people are interested in. Yeah, so yeah. it means that our work is super accessible. And then I do bring in the specialists and then they collaborate with sound designers, theatre designers, and all of those theat- theatrical ingredients that make worlds feel really exciting.
0: I can see why that's, that's really a, a rich experience for you as an artist, as an individual. But why... Is free, large-scale public art a good thing, in your view?
2: I think it makes you look at your world differently. So, people in Plymouth, when the dragon came into Plymouth, it was a bit like when the whale came down the Thames. I think it was suddenly everybody is interested in the same thing. They're talking to each other in the in the same way. The whole world is you know sliding into this brilliant narrative. So you end up speaking to your neighbour about it, and you end up yeah. speaking to strangers at the bus. People connecting and talking because something magical has happened, and um, to and to play and to join in with the conceit of that.
1: I think that's very true, actually, because I, I saw The the Hatchling and, and The Dragonfly in Plymouth, because I lived not far away down the road in Cornwall, and I was amazed by how many people in my local village community had heard about it and engaged with it and maybe gone to see it. And the fact that it flew across the land is on the beach down the road from where we are as well made a lot of people really sort of engaged with it. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the, the journey of the hatchling and sort of what happened over that time? Because I think it's really interesting what what you did and how you sort of conceived that piece of theatre, I suppose.
2: Yes, it kind of takes a weekend. So it was Friday evening that we had an egg that was in the middle of the city centre. And it wasn't your normal sort of looking egg. It kind of had this skin to it uh, and it looked a bit misshapen and there was smoke coming out of it and you could hear something rumbling within it. I went there early in the evening and there was you know, groups of kids and people around it talking about the egg's going to hatch tomorrow.
0: Mm. And then I went
2: late at night about 11pm and the guy with a guy with a can of Naga was there and I said, oh, what's this? And he said, oh, don't you know, this is the dragon, she's going to fly tomorrow, it's going to be absolutely Beautiful. You've got to go, and you know. Really?
1: So, how did he? How did they know about that? Was that just word of mouth? Was did he sort of put the story ahead, or did people just spread the story themselves?
2: We were going to keep it a secret. We were going to let you see the egg hatch, follow the dragon around. She nests. Then the next day, before she transforms into this huge kite and flies, but then I thought. I've I thought about that moment, you know, before bonfire night where everyone gets their coats on and they know they're going to the fireworks. And I've yeah. just imagined lots of people in their family homes getting ready to go. And I wanted that to be part of it as well. We're going to see a dragon fly. Um, yeah. So I I did want it to keep it a secret in case we had, you know, horse and others and then people felt like they'd lost out. Yeah, so yeah, we yeah. had 30 community groups, all part of the dragons process. All the groups did their own thing. So we spent a lot of time in the community uh, learning about what people are into. So there's people who are really into um, driving little model boats around this bit of fountain way and Dragon came and peered in on that. And there's a really great roller derby community. And so they came out and... Gated and skidded around her, and she watched them um, sort of in a amused way.
1: So, this dragon's a sort of giant puppet that's moving, walking around Plymouth. So, just so that people sort of can picture the, the, the whole thing after yeah. it hatched. So, after it hatched, what, what, what was everyone actually looking at?
2: Think of the Woolworths, because uh, everyone knows yeah. that image. And yeah. um, the size, so when she's a baby, she's the size of a single decker bus. And when she's an uh, adult, she's the size of a double decker bus. So she, on day one, you see her as the baby oh. and where she's putting her head into shops and she's creating like mayhem and splashing the fountain and that sort of thing. So there's about 10 to 14 puppeteers on her at that point. Mm. And then mm-hmm. when she's, went the next day, don't tell anyone, but we swap her for, for the adult dragon, obviously. Um, <laughs> she's got a team of 36 puppeteers constantly rotating in and out, um, using the same methodology that, um, and Mervyn Miller developed with uh, the Warhorse team when they were making Warhorse. So Mervyn's the director for this. And then that kind of gets bigger when she goes onto her transformation sequence, because then you, she joins in with 27 kite flyers. A lot of them are world championship kite flyers, um, but to create this transformation. And then she joins the boat team who are the guys who regularly take people out on boats around the hoe. And they essentially became. You know, if you think of a kite, it's tied to the boat and it goes all the way up the cliff. So this is a huge line and then into the sky. Um, so it's really worth just looking at the hatchling.com.
1: No, yeah. I highly recommend looking at it.
2: And she's really beautifully lit. So Matt Dor did the lighting. So she came in at sunset. So you've got a golden red suns, um, you know, skyscape and then that blended beautifully when, when it reached darkness. And so when she went up into the sky she she went out so far that she just looked like the moon um, so you could see her go all, all the way out to sea and disappear into, into the night over the buildings and lighthouses.
0: It sounds absolutely magical and there's something isn't there very special about that kind of um, theatre that uses natural light and the natural transition from day into evening into night.
2: Yeah, I mean people said you know I, I'll never be able to see Plymouth in the same way I won't be able to see my world without a dragon that might just come through it. And she's she's a really beautiful dragon because I think dragon white, it's like an image in your head that's scaly and red. It's it's, That's something we deliberately didn't do because dragons in the east they're respected and revered and in the west they're a monster and that's really interesting to me. So we had five different academics working on different projects over the dragon's gestation so it took six years to make and one was about zoology and taxidermy so one of the doctors followed how we looked at different sorts of creatures to make a real dragon mm. and our first paleontologist we worked with by the natural history museum was this doctor who was interested in pterosaurs and he had a real bee in his bullet about the game of thrones dragon he said that dragon would never have flown the, the tail was too fat and <laughs> wings were all the wrong shape. So he took pains to work with Mervyn and Cole, Carl, and Carl's the designer and the world-class pin kite flyer and designer. Those three worked together to make a, a real dragon that could really fly, and I'm doing quotation marks but no, only can't hear that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll put some links to your um, to your website so people can have a look and, and see what the dragon actually looked like. And I gather the dragon came back more recently as well to perform at the Platinum Jubilee?
2: Yep, she led the People's Procession.
1: Wonderful. And are we likely to see the dragon again in the future or can you not tell us that?
2: The Year of the Dragon is her year. So 2024, we've got some international dates that we're just firming up at the moment.
0: I really want to dig into the sort of challenges you face making a piece of art on that scale in that sort of public arena. But before we do that, would you mind taking us back to the beginning a little bit? How did it all begin for you personally, your life in making theatre?
2: I've always r- liked writing stories. So when I was a kid, I would be in my room writing in my notepad and I wanted to be an author. And I did a creative writing degree and I got really into being a um, journalist and fiction. Those were my two things. And then when I came out of uni, one of my first little jobs, free jobs, was to go and write for a literary magazine, a um, piece about performance poetry. I was thought, oh my God, that's going to be so boring. And I went out onto the London scene and I got totally sucked in by an spoken word scene. And that's when right. people like Kay Tempest were there, still in tiny little pub theatres. And it was so vibrant, the poetry scene. And I never wrote that article because I got so into it. And I just wanted to work in performance poetry. So I got a job as a press officer at Apples and Steaks. But I didn't know what a press officer was. So it was the interview and I just talked about how much I loved poetry. <laughs> I genuinely didn't know what it was at all. And... But Geraldine College took me on and that was based at Battersea Arts Centre. And when I entered Battersea Arts Centre World, I suddenly was opened up to all this experimental theatre yeah, and devised theatre. And then I went on to work with Kate McGrath at Fjord and David Farr at the Derek Trumpsmith. So enjoyed you know, developing things in the studio and then having this incredible main house and loving the awe of sitting in the red velvet seats. But I was Kind of more interested in doing stuff just outside than the lyrics.
1: On the square outside, yeah. Do they still do them? They used to a lot of, I did years ago, I did something on the square outside. It was fantastic. It became a community show. And so I hope those are still going.
2: Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I did something where David Rosenberg was trying out his first um, contained violence, was it called? So David Rosenberg can shunt loves voyeurism and binaural sounds. So we did a piece there playing with audiences who are live and moving around and not listening to you and you have to catch their attention. Yeah. And then I got the opportunity to join National Theatre of Scotland, which was run by Vicky Featherstone at the time. Mm. And she truly was about a theatre without walls at that time. So that was Mm. really fun. I took this sort of shunt vibe and I took it to a tiny village hall in Govan, which is a very deprived part of Glasgow. And Because when I got to Glasgow, pretty much everyone told me not to do anything in Govan. And if I went to Govan, I'd be beaten up. And I thought that's where I need to go. And so I spent about a year in Gubbin. So imagine this tiny place got a couple of gambling shops, a pound shop, a Greg's, one pub, nothing else. A shopping mall, empty, been empty forever. And I used to go to the pub, and everyone voted BNP. And so I'd just hang out in there and chat to people. And then there was this big gates with some dogs outside, and if you went past there, they'd start barking like mad. I was like, what's behind those gates? And they said, oh, oh no, that's Jimmy, Fellows. You don't want to go there. They're the travelers. And so I went up to the gates and I was like, hello. <laughs> and, um, and then I got in with all the travelers. And I just used to go there every week and just go, hi, Jimmy, what's going on? And after a while, they invited me in for tea. And then they said, do you want to see what we're working on? And I was like, oh. And they showed me around the corner and there was a 40-foot boat they'd been repairing. Right. And then they took me further into the yard and there was all this incredible fairground equipment, bumper cars, carousels. At the, at the pub, they were really into karaoke. So every Tuesday, they'd just get absolutely pissed and just do karaoke. So we ended up doing these um, govern, um nights called allotments. So I'd take over the shopping mall with fairground equipment, kinetic artists, theatre artists, gamers, we did it every month, so each month it was a different theme. So one time it was gaming, another time it was ships and shipbuilding, and there were some local shipbuilders. And, and then by the end, it became a government festival. So you'd go from the shopping mall to the pub where you'd have karaoke, but with live artists. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the traveller's yard where the boat had been turned into a stage because we'd connected the visual artists with the with the kit in the travelers yard. Anyway, it became really fun. And I did that for, yeah, a year and a half. And then I left and actually I went back a few years ago um, and the landlady from the pub came running out. She hugged me and she said, by God, you've made this place a theatre. And I said, what do you mean? She said, National Theatre here all the bloody time, doing stuff upstairs. She said, Buzzcut are here every year. They do their live art festival. So it
1: was by, it was by living there and meeting people that it all evolved. Did you have to fight for funding for it? How did the practical side of all that work?
2: That was National Theatre of Scotland. So they right. said to me, how can we become more diverse? And um, I said in the interview, I said, I'm, I'm an Asian woman and I often get tokenized and saying, so it's like, oh, so you'll be wanting to make a play about arranged marriage. No, thank you. And so one of the first things that happened to it when I joined was that they were siphoning off calls to me that were from Asian people, or disabled people. I said, hang on a minute, I want to do a project that talks about true diversity and true integration. Mm. And so they gave me that time and budget to work in that deprived area. And I brought in people like refugee groups, science seekers, all different to- sorts of people. My point was that you're not creating one thing for one set of people. Yeah. And not everyone was a fan of that. Not everyone thought I did my job the way they thought I was going to do my job, but um, but I did. But then I want to claw fellowship at around that time. And, oh, I had such an incredible conversation with this woman called Dame Janessa McIntosh. Yeah. She used to run the national um, chief exec and then she went on to the Royal Opera Show. Okay. And I hope she doesn't mind me just telling her story in a very brief way. I she just, she came in my mentor for a while. I got out to respect for her. And she talked very openly about getting offered the job at the Royal Opera House and she took it and it was a really difficult process. And I think it was around the time there was a fly on the wall about the opera house as well.
0: The house? Was that yeah, the, the, the documentary movie. series in the 90s. Yeah, before the refurbs.
2: Yeah, okay. So this is, like I'm younger than you guys, so this is all fable to me. So a difficult time, and she left in the end, and she had a very bad, um, yeah, negative experience of that. But what she said to us, Claus, at the time was, just think about the ladder that you're climbing, and make sure you're climbing the right ladder because for her, she was climbing a ladder, but she wasn't on the right track. She wasn't right. really passionate as an opera. It was just that she wanted to go high. Mm. And at that same week, Vicky offered me a permanent contract at National Theatre of Scotland. And when she'd offered it to me, I said, yes, absolutely, i want to be here forever. And then when Janista said that, I thought, oh, I don't really want to make theatre all the time, and I don't really want to be constantly... You know, the allotment was criticised for not being theatre enough, rather than just on its own merit. Mm. And I also came to terms with, this is the National Theatre of Scotland, so they are allowed just to make the (laughs) theatre. So I shouldn't give them a hard time. I should just part ways now and do what I want to do. And that's when I set up Trigger in 2011. At the time, we called it Cross Art Forum. But really, I'm not bothered about crossing art form. I'm just interested in making stuff for audiences that's super accessible.
1: So you, you, you left Ash Theatre Scotland to set up Trigger. Um, how did you get that company off the ground? How did you begin?
2: So we started off just project grants, really, um, mm. through Creative Scotland. The first project, then actually my favourite project, was called Visit. I was living in a two-storey tenement building in Glasgow. So, you know, lots of flights of stairs. And the woman I lived next door to was very elderly, and I was aware that she couldn't go out. And at that point, I was young, so I was, every night I was going to a gig or seeing friends or going to the mm. theatre. And I'd have this little girl, she wasn't doing anything, she could get out. So I wanted to make work for people who were housebound for all sorts of different reasons. And so I had to kind of blag it, because I was just, all I'd done is set up a website. And, you know, you're not really a company, are you? So I, I went around to people who work with people who are housebound, like Alzheimer's Scotland and the Housing Association. And I'd go in and I'd say, hi, I'm from Trigger, and well. there's loads of people behind me. And we're doing a project for people who are housebound. And, um, you know, we're already working with Alzheimer's Scotland, so don't you want to be involved? And so yeah. in that way, by telling everybody else that everybody else was in it, I got seven partners, right. seven organisations to put in three grand each. Brilliant. And then I went to Create Scotland for £100,000. They gave it to me, which is great. And then I commissioned seven artists. So Josie Loll was one of them, Aidan Moffat, The Frightened Rabbit, really good, brilliant, mm. top-notch artists. Then I met with each of the seven partners and their clients, and I found out more about what they wanted to do, and um, what they were into. Some of them were like, I really want comedy or poetry or whatever. And so that's how I selected the artists. And then the artists became resident with the organization. I mean, they didn't live there, but they really took a deep dive into what it means to be Alzheimer's. So that when Josie did her performance for somebody's living room, she would know that someone with Alzheimer's is going to find it difficult to follow a long-form narrative. So she'd Mm -hmm. do something with like lots of callback. We did the most gorgeous piece of work for this woman, Janet's living room. And she she sat in a chair and she watched musicals all day, but also she couldn't get to the VHS player. So she would be able to watch them and then she'd have to wait. If someone brought in some lunch, she might be able to watch the next bit or whatever. So her lifestyle was very boring. Like she, You can imagine, she's almost chair-bound, never mind house-bound, and she's living on her own in a a flat. So I go around there and she was fairly cheerful, but it was all about her health and what's going to be next. and. And then when Josie came in and just dimmed the lights up and down in the living room, it going kind of dark, light dark. She go, Josie, Lord, welcome to Janet's living room. And Janet invited her neighbors around. So actually it was like quite a cozy living room. And then Josie did all these jokes about the musicals that she knew Janet had been watching as she'd come for a visit before her mm-hmm. performance. And it was just honestly, now it just gives me tingles. The way that living room absolutely changed. And that lifelong memory stayed with that person and it just transformed her space. And people, you were like, when are you going to do it again? When are you going to do it again? And there's always that guilt there that I'm not going back to Janet's living room every month. No, but I still think that theatre has that incredible resonance that, that sticks and, and has created some sort of glue within the people in that room mm. beyond me going. But yeah, that was a beautiful project. That's-
1: Beautiful story. And also, well done you for getting all that started. That's incredible. The sort of the blagging side of it. And the, your sort of yeah. determination to to make it happen and to to make something that can
0: make such a big difference to people. Sounds like you sort of talked it into existence.
2: That's what I do. Yeah, that's exactly what I do.
0: Which is really, I mean, that's an amazing skill. That's, that's yeah. Sort of quite a lot of bravery involved in that. And these days then, now that you're an established company and people obviously, you, you have an amazing reputation, Are you commissioned? Do people approach you with proposals? Like the city council says that we would like a dragon to hatch or do you bring the ideas to to them?
2: Uh, I bring the ideas and I love that you think that we're established company. You know, two years ago, you would have met me and Natalie who's on maternity leave and that would be it here in my living room. So it's been a really long and a lot of talking things into existence and the hatching, good example of that one because I went to every artistic director in the country saying, I'm going to make a dragonfly. Right. Quite a few of them, you know, stifled laughter, which only made me want to do it more. <laughs> but, um, you know, I talked a million pounds into existence for that project, which um, which is pretty big for someone who's really, when you've got a company, really all you have is a website and a company's yeah. house thing. And now and again, HMRC saying, you really need to do your accounts now.
1: Right. <laughs> Mor- <laughs> Yeah.
2: Um. But yeah. Yesterday we got our MPO. Oh we, Our national portfolio funding. So we've just entered the portfolio for arts council. So Congratulations. Now's the birth of us being an established company. <laughs>
1: <laughs> before that, you before that you had the impression of being one because you blagged it. But we 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 were convinced.
2: I've definitely felt like I've been blagging it for a long time but no we don't the short answer is no we don't get somebody saying here's the money we're in a better position now if I go to someone with a flying dragon they'll say oh okay it's going to be good and they won't laugh at me that's that's the privilege
1: because you've proved it can you just tell us a bit about what winning the MPO actually means for you as a company and you as an individual
2: yeah I think being part of the national portfolio just as a founding director is quite a big Deal. Like mm. to think that you started with a bit of paper, some colored pens probably. And then to get to a point where we've just won £325,000 a year for three years, that's a lot of money and yeah. that's a lot of safety and that's a lot of being able to just get on with projects and just think about audiences and just go for it. And it suddenly means all the ideas can just tumble and happen. Whereas the hatching taking six years... You no, know, I started off with a fifteen thousand pound grant, and then I got sixty. I remember getting about sixty thousand pounds, and I was like, mm, "Oh my gosh!" And then when we finally got the project grant to make it happen, that was to pay for all of the staff and me and everyone. So it just releases a lot of tension. I don't think I realised how much was building up because you carry all the risk personally when you're yeah. working with projects, um, and when people go off and they're ill and stuff, it, it hits you in a personal way mm. and in a panic. And so it's just, it just means that I can breathe. You know, it's been 11 uh, years now that I've been project by project and, yeah. and bringing things into existence. And it means I can just get on with it and know that it's actually going to happen rather than trying to wing it to happen. Yeah. Um, so it feels quite a big relief. And it means that I get to employ loads of people and employ freelancers. You know, there's just so much we can do now.
0: And in terms of the subject, the decision to go for a dragon or the botanical gardens project, how do you decide upon the subject? Are you just going for things that really capture your imagination?
2: I think I think really I just get obsessed with something and then that fire continues until mm. I make it. I got very obsessed with that dragon project. I'm really glad now. Now I look back and I think, God, God you really into that. Like, I'm a bit surprised by myself. So and you feel like same- you've come
0: out of it now. You've sort of lived it and it's... Yeah.
2: Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, I know, that can go. <laughs> um, and the gardening is another one. And I mean that in my personal life. So I got really into upholstery and um, when I had my first child and I upholstered everything. And I thought I was going to get an upholstery workshop and that this would maybe be my new career. And then after I upholstered, pretty much everything, in the house I stopped. Done. Luckily, that didn't turn into a project because I don't know what that would have been. But but I guess with phases...
0: And uh, What about locations? Do you go looking for locations or do you see a location in your travels that you respond to and think that would be good for a project? Um, do you have to go out and find them?
2: Hmm, the Plymouth one, I think I went to a lot of locations, if I'm honest, before we got a commission. Yeah. So that was due to trying to find some more, we could mm. commission it. But it was the perfect location for it.
1: Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, that night on the hoe was just extraordinary. I need to ask you, you couldn't ever rehearse it because you had to, the, the time you did it was the first time you'd ever done it. Is that, that's right, is it? Oh my God, you like living bitches. <laughs> because the, yeah. the scale's too big. So I to—did were you there when they were sort of transforming the puppet dragon into the flying dragon? Was there a moment when you thought this isn't going to happen?
2: I was absolutely breaking it. Yeah, i it was pretty scary. The way we do it is we, we lift her off just to check and then we bring her down and then we lift her off and she goes. So I knew that, but we—I've been to plenty of test flights where she didn't work. So the second test flight, and so bear in mind, in mind this is not at the time definitely not an established organisation. It's just me and um, one other person, and we'd spent all our money on this kit. So we've got a shipping container worth of dragon now that's cost us 150 grand, whatever. One and then we're bringing her out, and we've got two days on on the airfield to test her. And we've spent all the money on fifteen kite people being there and plus it's a lot of money, all the hotel rooms. And then for the first day it just rained like I've never seen before. It's just like absolute like buckets, buckets. We're trying to put this together and trying to like keep the vibe up and we've got two portaloons and no nowhere to have a tea. everyone just had to sit in their car. Nothing else is happening. And then we didn't get very far that day. And then we had the next day, and then they sort of rigged her up, lifted her. And two world kite champion flies came over to me and said, uh, I hate to tell you this, but that thing's not going to lift the ground. There's absolutely no way. And they're whispering this to me because Carl, the designer, they didn't want him to hear. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, and then Carl took all the fabric off the wings and he bundled them into his van and he said, I'm going to come back and I just need to go into my sewing machine. And I went around the back of there because there's no, there's no place to hide. So I went back. back. Behind the lorry and just was like, had to have a few deep breaths. I was like shaking. I was like, Oh my God. Am I going to have to put this whole thing in the skip? Cause I'm not going to get this money again to, to build it. And he came back and he strapped it all on. And then she flew. And then that night in the pub, <laughs> he, he did a speech and he said, thank you to everyone here believing in me. <laughs> no one could meet his eye because every single person had gone, no, this is not going to work. But it really, really was um, was a bit audacious because not even the kite flyers thought it was the fly.
1: And on the cliff in Plymouth that night, the wind wasn't in the right direction and you had a cable going all the way down from the hoe, which is hundreds of metres down to a boat in the sea below.
2: And the boat said that they nearly crushed the rocks. And there was just a lot of things that could have, um, have gone a bit more pear-shaped. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it worked and it was extraordinary. Um... We sort of covered a bit of this anyway, but I'm just sort of curious about, we, I mean, a lot of our conversation on this podcast is about the process of how you, you put a show on, and in, in theatre it's a very familiar process of script and then design, rehearsals, rehearsal room, technical rehearsals, adding it together, dress rehearsal, preview, opening. Broadly, does um, your work and work you're planning in the future follow a similar kind of pattern or is it a very different kind of process? Oh
2: yeah, that sounds so, so good and logical. I should do that <laughs> one. I know that one. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I'll i tell you about my new project, um, just to give us something to think about. So, my new project, I'm really interested in the very unsexy word, biopiracy.
1: Okay.
2: So, biopiracy is the patenting of plants and flowers and any biological product, mm. usually by Western corporations. We're patenting stuff that belongs to or started it off in developing countries. And the reason that's scary is that between 2000s, early 2000s to now, the patenting has increased astronomically and it's a modern form of colonization. So Nestle, for example, patented rooibush tea and this group of farmers in South Africa were growing rooibush quite happily and then Nestle put the patent on it and it meant all the profits now had to go to Nestle and they're their only um, supplier. So they created a poverty trap for these guys and they own it. It's their stuff, right? but unless they put it on the patenting website first, Um, so unless they take the profit. There's examples of this. Basmati rice was patented, Darjeeling tea, turmeric, away from India to Western corporations. So I want to tell this story because I think the pollination has told the story of why we're multicultural in a really interesting way. Well, I think people see colonization's in the past and it's historic and yes, sorry about that, but let's move on. Yeah. But we're doing it all the time. So the way I want to do it is through a culinary experience. So I want to do it through food. And so you will experience a night out eating and you'll start understanding how your food has been stolen. Um, but also, I don't want to make anyone feel too sad because my work isn't about making you feel shit, but... It's about a realisation, a dawning of the world that we're in. So that's a very early idea. We've just been to Melbourne and met some academics in um, biopiracy We've learned a bit more about the traditional plants that have been stolen in Australia. Mm. Um, And that's a really interesting place to learn about it. Um, And now I'm trying to figure out my next step on the project. I think my next step is to work with a chef um, and to start thinking about what are the interesting foods and then my other thought is maybe I should get a market stall this winter and start not selling foods, but put up a stall of foods and start talking to the public about this food and where it's come from and just see what, what perps people's interest hmm. and whether it even works. And then I can figure out ways.
1: Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So, yeah, yeah, it's going to evolve. You're starting on an adventure, on a journey of telling the story.
2: Yeah. I guess each one is more like a research inquiry that's got an open and public outcome.
0: And in doing the research, the project starts to take shape as you go. You might not necessarily know what it is to start with, but it will find its
2: form. Yeah. I was learning about, uh, you know, in the in the East, we have a connective personality. So it's all about the um, bigger game, all of us winning. And then in the West, we're individualistic mavericks. And then I was thinking, well, maybe some food you can you can select to have a sharing plate or individual plates. And mm. the way you you navigate your way through the menus will be more illuminating about you. And
0: it's really fascinating. It is. Can we now dig a little bit into the sort of nitty gritty practicalities of putting these shows on in a public space? We are lucky we do get to work in a variety of different disciplines. But the truth is that the vast majority of my career has been working in a purpose-built venue where there's a very specific infrastructure and all sorts of things in place to support the work we make, not least backstage machinery and the technical stuff alongside that, but also a very specific system in place for managing the audience. And clearly, you don't really have any of that Uh, when you go and do a piece in front of 30,000 people on the Plymouth Ho. You have to factor a lot more into your planning than you would if you were making the show in the theatres. Could you talk a little bit about that? For example, how do you tech a show in a public space? Is everything essentially in public or do you end up working strange hours to keep it secret?
2: So first of all, excellent production manager. So we, we work a lot with Chris Clay, Doc mm-hmm. Street Events, and they have so much experience of working, you know, with, they did a lot of whole city of culture, they're doing some stuff for Leeds and so doing all of that stuff and how you manage a crowd and um, that sort of thing for, for festivals, that's mm-hmm. kind of... I say off the shelf, it's really hard work for Chris. Yeah, yeah. so you you, you employ
1: someone brilliant who knows how to do that kind of thing.
2: Exactly, yeah.
1: Mentally, you can delegate that to
0: someone who's done it before. Yeah. But that's interesting, that that parallel with festivals puts it into a really useful context for me. I sort of understand that now.
2: Yeah, and then with the tech, um, for pollinations, we have these incredible 40-foot architectural trees with a canopy for this beautiful super garden, and Matt Dorigan was doing the lighting for that. And so we had, yeah, it was late in the evening where he'd get on the night deck and do some of that work. With the hatchling, that had to, Matt had to, I think he was lighting a digger for a while, instead of the, the so dragon, there's... so he didn't have a dragon <laughs> out there. the thing. And so he, he was really pleased to yeah. see it, because the, the fabric lights beautifully, but he didn't actually get to see that until it happened.
0: Oh, right, so there wasn't an opportunity to test the fabric somewhere else off-site or anything like that? Not of so scale, yes. Yeah, That's and,
1: and our yeah. members of the public kind of wandering past, peering in, wondering what's going on. I mean, are you? Do yeah. you do, does does I assure pollination because that was huge in the centre of Birmingham. Do, did a lot of mm. people just like peer through the fence and wonder what's happening?
2: Yeah, and we made a virtue of that. We made little yeah. peepholes, and people loved it. And it's the best advert, mm. you know. Yeah, seeing something happen when we opened the doors of pollination, people just flooded in in a way I just didn't expect because there had been such a pent up curiosity.
1: Yeah, it's giving them a, t- a taste and a flavour and a, a buzz that something's happening. And your projects rely on a community, of a big community sometimes, of cast and volunteers. Um, how do you find them? How do you put those groups together?
2: It's, again, lots of time. So we go out and meet each group. And I'm really interested in finding out what people are interested in. What I don't like doing is going, OK, we need to have a community in here. So let's all have a community choir and then let's do a call out for a community choir because that fits our form. I'm yeah. like, no, like people should just do what they do best. Like the boat guys just slick at driving boats. Yeah. So Derek, you stay there. You don't need to join a choir. And yeah. and then there's pride. Even more pride comes out because people are proud of what they've done, not what they're learning to do and how they're fitting into your form. Yeah.
1: They love sharing their knowledge and their interest, I suppose. I guess if you're engaging with what you're interested in, what do you do? How would you like to share it? That's a very different conversation from we need 40 people to come and stand where they're told to or whatever. Yeah. That's great. And I imagine the people participating get a huge amount back from being part of a project like that. Do you think the shows are as much for the volunteer performers as they are for the audience?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I found that the pollinators volunteers were so proud. Mm. When we did the briefing, we didn't just say, okay, so make sure that fire exits here or here. We said, we've been developing this project for a year. We've created these trees. We've got... Lighting design from so so, sound design, and horticultural design from Chelsea and And now we've had this, now we're giving it to you, and you are the custodians of this space. And you are the people people are going to speak to. And that you see people like their chest rising and their shoulders coming back and their happy faces. And they were like, Yeah, we're the custodians of this space. Yeah. And they really took it on. And the amount of people who I'd done the briefing, but people forgot that. And so i will go in in a week. Later, and they go, Yeah, let me tell you about my space, blah, 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 blah. Lovely. I got home yesterday actually from a volunteer who said, I've oh, just, it's just stayed with me so much. I've sent you a poem to describe my experience there. So
0: incredible. Uh, when we were putting these questions together, I was a bit worried that this was a sort of slightly melodramatic question, but now I've heard you talk. I, I know that it's not. It's true, isn't it? That this sort of participation, that sort of experience actually changes people's lives at some level.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've all been part of something that has changed us, right? That's why we're in theatre. Probably yeah. all of the little things that we have experienced has led us to this point. Pollination, that's about, it's about the 80% of plants from different places, but it's also about the diversity that brings to your garden, the colours and the vibrancy and the difference. That is what's beautiful. And so that's what I was telling their volunteers and participants. This is a super garden. It's a place to celebrate the super youth. And the things that are different about you here are the things that are extraordinary and exciting. Whereas usually we feel like the odd one out. When we feel like the odd one out. We, we feel embarrassed and we feel like out of place, but this is a place to be. Um, you know, wear your henna, wear your glitter, wear all of it. This is a cross section. And my cousin came and he said, why have you got drag queens with like, you know, sitar players and stuff? And I was like, because here you can be both. You don't have to not be gay to be Asian or be Asian or not be gay. And he just was like, oh my gosh, that's really profound. And it was because, you know, he's never openly admitted to his Asian family that he's gay. But these intersections were opening up and one woman came over to me and she just, we just hogged under the trees and I've never met her before, apart from through the briefings. And she said, You know, I really want my daughter to be proud of being Asian and being British. And, you know, it's our time to parent differently. And it was a really emotional moment. And I just think it unlocks all of these conversations and public spaces and meeting people you haven't met before in this magical place where you can be more emotional than you could be if you're just meeting someone in a cafe. All that hyper-realism because there's the music and there's the lights and there's Mm. the flowers and there's this topic. Made it quite a, a big space and a big shift for a lot of people. And I witnessed that.
1: Brilliant. It's clearly was a huge success and it clearly meant a lot to all the people who attended and, um, the people who, who funded it. Were they very positive about the whole thing as well?
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, so we, we did reach everyone. We said at the beginning, what's your target audience? Everyone and every age, every yeah. type of person. They okay came. I think we, yeah, I think I'm really proud of it. What they wanted was to, to extend and they wanted to bring it back again yeah. before the um, year ended and we weren't able to do that just because of logistical reasons. So that was yeah, really yeah. sad. Um But we will be doing it again. But yeah, and it was great. And the only people who didn't like it the Daily Mail.
1: Oh, well, you could have probably predicted that before you even started making it, I guess. There's an attitude thing, isn't there, about, saying the Daily Mail in that, I don't know what headlines were, but I can imagine it's like, You're wasting money doing all this stuff. What's the point when people are starving? You can see, you know, you can see the decisions, the thing they might say. And I guess in a country of very much diminishing funding, difficult grant applications, and I think a society where value is more often than not measured in financial terms, I suppose. How do you quantify success? How do you get people to cough up the cash to make these events which are clearly really moving and really important?
2: I'm interested in bringing people together in a really divisive time. Mm. And I think that's probably what funders are interested in as well. And I'm not, yeah. I haven't gone in that direction in order to get funding, but it is one of the biggest problems that we're facing. I think is that we're in this culture wars where left and right is getting further and further apart from each other. Mm. And I'm trying to create a middle ground mm. and I'm also trying to create public space that is improved. So we're really interested by how much the cafe is going to make. And can we make it easier for someone to get to the bar across the road after they finished up the pollination so they can spend some money there and really benefit those businesses? And we spend time meeting the business improvement district organizations just to to genuinely uplift them. Mm. And then when you come out of a project and you can evaluate that well, it helps you get into the next one.
1: Yeah. Do do you have to put financial value on it in some way?
2: Yeah, we do on the evaluation and we do... When we apply for money and things, we'll say, oh, it works out to the three pounds a head or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, your, your point, standard as well, it's about numbers, it's about people, numbers. And I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. Some art could be more profound and powerful if you've got smaller numbers.
1: Yeah. Well, exactly like what you're describing in Glasgow with, you know, a single performer in someone's room making a profound difference to someone's life. It's I think it's such a difficult conversation, because obviously you need funding to make the whole thing happen. And it's increasingly difficult, potentially, to, to get that. Well, maybe in the world of the Daily Mail, it's, it's hard to justify spending money on public art, I think.
2: It's really hard. And, you know, you asked me earlier, do I get asked to do any commissions? Not really. really. Mm. Like, we apply the same as everyone else.
0: Do you find that it's a big part of your job, having to defend or justify the work?
2: No, I don't really bother with that. I mean, I've yeah. now gone through a couple of rounds of um, trolling very heavy racist, uh, um, nasty right wing media. The first time I went through it, it really shook me up, and now I consider it part of work. I'm like, great, I'm doing good work because the right really pissed off. <laughs> mm. But the middle, the middle is reporting it, and that's where I um, can make a shift in the world. I think.
1: But trolling that must be tough. Emotionally. It must be a hard thing to deal with, surely.
2: Yeah. It really tightens your heart up in a really weird way. Mm. You know, I just think social media is a bit mad. Um, and you've got to notice when it's, it's toying with your heart, literally. So, knock out Twitter, have it on your computer, and then at least you can leave it on the box and walk away.
1: Yeah, it's not with you all the time. It really shouldn't be part of your job to have to deal with that at all.
2: But social media does amazing change. So, right. um, I went viral recently.
1: Oh, I saw that, actually. Yeah, I, was that the bus story?
2: Yeah. So about six months ago, um, there was some stuff on a local social media channel about how refugees would be put into a hotel down the road from me and how terrible it would be and everyone should get burglar alarms. And so, yeah, a hundred guys have been left at this hotel down the road and I saw one of them outside and so I stopped and offered him a lift to Bristol. And since then, I've now got a WhatsApp group of 55 refugee guys, and another group of residents who were offering car shares. And we operate that so that we're bringing refugees in and out of Bristol all the time. But we found out that the, the bus drivers have stopped stopping or the refugees and have stopped bringing them back home. So then I only allow white passengers on a bus, not brown passengers. And so I took that to the police and the police sided with the bus drivers and said it's their prerogative to do what they want to do. I said, what if it's racist? And they said, well, it's not a crime. Wow. I spoke to the chief inspector. He also said it's not a crime. And then I took it to Twitter and it absolutely blew up. And it's been reported in the independent, the guardian, everywhere. And then last week I just got stagecoach after a lot of negotiation. I've offered them all free tickets, which is incredible. It's a hundred thousand mm. pounds worth of gift. Um, and there, and other things are happening too. And the whole effort changed so it's really useful
1: okay yeah so you have to take the rock of the swing to get yeah you can get great things out of Twitter as well so well done I mean, that's amazing
2: yeah and I think that's turning into some sort of creative project as well
0: I read recently about some rather unpleasant experiences that performers have had in immersive theatre specifically related to um, a show by Punch Drunk in New York and uh, they are now having to make extra provision to keep their performers safe so is that something you've had to deal with at all or not
2: we haven't had to deal with that, but we had a drag queen story time programmed for the populations project. And we realized that there's a lot of drag queen story times getting protests and, and people mm-hmm. shouting outside of them and things like that. So we did put in some provision for um, some support for the person who was doing the project. We had some extra chats with our production team about what we would do if a protest came in because you do have to let it happen. When you're in a public space, you can't shut the protest down. You essentially have to go with the person's lead who's performing. And then there was a big conversation about whether it's you're making someone hide away mm. if you take them off stage and the protesters want and things like that. So it is a bit more exposing doing stuff outside. So that, yeah, there's things to think about. Mm.
0: Yeah. In the context of the current leveling up that's taking place. I noticed that the company will be based in an old post office in, is it Blagdon? Yep. In North Somerset, which sounds idyllic. I'm just wondering, would you mind talking a little bit about what sorts of challenges and benefits you anticipate in, than being in the centre like Bristol or, or indeed London?
2: I live next door to Blagdon. So I'm in the Mender Pills right now. And Blagdon is, if you want to imagine what that's like, if you look at the back of the Yeo Valley product, it's right next to that Yeo Valley. And we bought a post office and so we're converting that. The place we work in Bristol, to be honest, is it's not like people are coming in and out all of the time, like you might imagine. Mm. So I didn't think it would be hugely different. And we're going to be right opposite the community centre and village hall. So we've got really cheap rehearsal space and artistic development space right there on our doorstep and we've got the local pub and it just feels a bit more wholesome, to be honest. Mm. But it's where I live, so it's not it might look a bit cynical that we're in a levelling up place, but I've been here for um, five years now.
0: For a long time, I've sort of felt like I needed to be in London. And actually, I suppose since pandemic, I've become aware that one doesn't actually have to be. You can do an awful lot from anywhere now. Um, and that, But that's partly to do with technology that's advanced. And as a consequence of the pandemic, people's attitudes to that has changed, does not it? But increasingly, it feels like there is no real need to be based in a city other than just proximity to all those theatres, which, of course, you're not concerned with at all.
2: Exactly. That's why it's really helpful. And <laughs> yeah, I yeah. encourage anyone who wants to learn the kinds of lifestyle yeah. to do the odd, extraordinary event and yeah. join the outdoors world.
0: Is there a, a subsection of the theatre community that specialises in outdoor stuff? Or do you find that your teams are people from all different walks of theatre?
2: If you think about outdoors, most people think about juggling, street theatre outdoor dance whereas our work isn't you know you can look at the outdoor touring network but we don't really happily sit in that touring network because not many people would tour mm. our work so perhaps it's easier to say that we're place making work that's the sort of thing we do we do well because we're really interested in those partnerships and community groups and that sort of thing mm. weirdly the village I live in um, is about one road long I share the village with the guy who was Arcadia So he has a huge spider that spits fire. at I've got a massive dragon, but neither of which would actually fit in the village.
1: (laughs) He's getting both in the same place one day. (laughs) That's brilliant. (laughs) Do you think you're part of the theatre community?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's a cosy community, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it definitely is.
2: Yeah, we're quite nimble um, doing lots of different things. And And I don't think, you know, what I'm doing is, It all lives within the same language. It's not Mm. very far apart, I don't think. I just am more outside than inside.
1: I think, I mean, I'm in awe, Angie, I really am, of the work you do and the the projects you come up with and the effect you you have on people and the community. It's it's really, really extraordinary. A real privilege to talk to you about it. Thank you. James, do you want to
0: move on to our quick fire round? Are you ready? I
2: don't know what it is, but I'm ready. (laughs)
0: Angie, when producing a show, what is your favourite tool?
2: Coloured pens. Coloured pens. Coloured pens.
0: Uh, can you name a show that's not one that you've made, but one that's had a profound influence on you?
2: Uh, just the whole Shunt vaults when it was alive under under bridge. Great. Okay. R.I.P.
0: Are you up with the dawn chorus, or are you a night owl? I
2: oh, need. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm usually up with dawn chorus. Down to my little one. I've got a three and six year old. And I'm not a night owl because I'm scared of the dawn chorus. I just live in this fear of both. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I remember those days. What's your favourite part of the process of making theatre?
2: Um, well, I love R&D, but when I'm in it, I'm like, I wish I knew what I was doing. And then I love delivery, but then when I'm doing it, I'm like, I miss when it couldn't have been anything. And then yeah. I love opening, but I'm genuinely probably shitting myself. <laughs> and then that 1st wine after opening is pretty good so it all comes with a oh,
0: it comes down. down to the wine again does it
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, of all the roles that are involved in making a show in your opinion which is the most underappreciated
2: I think the production manager Chris will say oh, I'd like to throw the curve ball and I do have the privilege of going let's think Dragonfly and then um, you know watching us Carl and Chris like figure it out and I yeah. just sort of give them biscuits and win the money
1: yeah, I think I think that's very fair to say. Actually, I think a creative production manager is vital. Absolutely. What do you bring with you to get you through
0: a long show day, a rehearsal day, I suppose I should say?
2: My coffee takeaway cup and chocolate.
0: And finally, pudding or cheese.
2: You've met me at a very interesting time because I think I'm turning <laughs> from pudding to cheese. Oh. I, my My can, changed and I just, I've, I've turned 40. So yeah, I'm going to cheese now. And I'm saying it publicly for the first time.
1: Wow, cheese, I've listened to cheese publicly. <laughs> I right, suppose you're not that far from cheddar, are you? Yeah,
2: yeah, it's true.
1: So James has been carrying around a suspiciously large rucksack filled with clanky bottles. He's now sitting cross-legged on the grass, setting up some kind of impromptu bar. How do you realise he forgot the corkscrew? He'd managed to blag one from a fellow audience member and is now trying to rustle up something that will do for glasses. Um, what will you have?
2: Um, I'm ha- If we're in a summertime situation, Prosecco, because I can drink that for ages. Uh, gin gin tea? Have you got that, James? Uh,
0: or i have a beer. got a I, payload? Yes, we can say what we <laughs> like. To be honest, I drink
2: a lot of drinks.
0: James's got a big rucksack. You'll be fine. <laughs> Thank you, Angie. That was wonderful. Yeah, fantastic.
1: So great to talk to you. Um, yeah, it's yeah. really nice. Very good.
2: I could do the school run now.
0: The Making Theatre Podcast is compiled, produced and edited by Bruno Poet and myself, James Farncombe. As ever, if you have any questions, comments or even ideas for future episodes, you can contact us on Instagram or Twitter and Making Theatre FM or if you prefer by email on makingtheatrepodcast at gmail.com We are doing this for fun and also hopefully to contribute to a broader awareness of everyone's role in the industry so we do all the hard work all you have to do is spread the word and take a moment to leave us a glowing review on your favourite podcast platform Seems like a pretty good deal to me and we'll be very grateful Until next time thanks for listening and Goodbye Goodbye